0: I am not a number. I am a free man. Hello and welcome to Chaos Radio, the international edition. This is the second interview of the Chaos Communication Congress. My name is Tim Pritloff, and my guest today is Joey Ito. To Joy Ito, hello Joy. Hi Tim. Yeah, it's good to have you here. Um, actually, for the second time at the Chaos Communication Congress, you had a talk last year already on your uh, emergent democracy paper, which was more uh, or less the yeah you know, one of the reasons why we were um, coming to you. Um, I'd like to get into um, well. I think many people in, in Germany might not know uh, what you are dealing with, so um, that's why I also pointed out this in the in the opening speech that you have a well, you're originally from Japan, that's right, but you mm-hmm. grew up in the U.S. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. So, how long did you stay in in Japan, and how long?
1: S- so I was in <clears throat> Japan until I was around two years old, and then I moved to Canada, and then the U.S and then I moved back to Japan in junior high school and high school and then went to the US for college and I dropped out and became a disc jockey and then I moved back to Japan. (laughs) You you dropped out of the the university. Um, Why did you do that? Well, um, first I was taking computer science and then I realized that I didn't want to learn computers in school so I dropped out once and then I started physics because i thought maybe it would be better but i found out that it was a machine just trying to train engineers and not scientists so i dropped out again uh in chicago and started well i started working in the nightclub in chicago before i dropped out but that's where i ended up um you you started that nightclub yourself no um the nightclub i worked at in chicago was one was called the smart bar which is kind of a punk alternative music place and my main uh place was at the limelight in chicago but then i started a nightclub in japan and invited the staff from chicago to join me and and i ran it for about a year in japan
0: Mm -hmm. was this also part of the house music uh, scene yeah
1: the house was just winding down they still had a lot of the house places but the great thing about chicago is that it has very few tourists so most of the cool clubs are made for people like our club who come every day and so when you come every day, you can have a very wide diversity and genre. And so we played house, but we, we would even, we sometimes played Manana. You know, our club played the Fine Young Cannibals for the first time, and so they thanked us in their speech and things like that. But it was a, it was a good club, and it was a lot of the musicians who came to Chicago would come to the club afterwards. And I still went maybe 16 years afterwards. And the same doorman was there, and I went a couple of years ago, and some of the same bartenders are there. So it's a real kind of uh, traditional, traditional underground culture, yeah.
0: Uh-huh. I, find, I find this very interesting, because um, Chicago and, and, and Detroit had quite a strong influence on, on Europe in terms of electronic music yes. in, the, in the 80s. Um, I, um, well, I don't know how they evolved in the meantime, if there's any kind of... Um, backslash from Europe back to into the scenes?
1: Yeah, there was a, there was a lot of communication. And I think, like, um, I don't know the correct pronunciation, but like Einster Zende and uh, like Leibach, uh, from Croatia, they, they were a huge influence in the Chicago industrial scene. And I was working closely with Wax tracks. And, um, and it was usually individuals, DJs and other people, who would bring the culture back and forth. Um, but when techno became kind of commercial, um, I think that just sort of took it in the wrong direction. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think the rave culture kind of tipped it over the end and it was less interesting for me after that.
0: So your influence of music was quite strong back then, I yeah. guess. Yeah.
1: Well, well, to tell a little bit about how I ended up there is my mother and I was quite involved in traditional media. And I was involved in very interested in uh, music production, and that's what got me interested in the internet because I realized that all the traditional media was so controlled, and you you can get try to become very independent and underground, but at the end of the day, you hit the record companies again, and that was a huge influence on why I do what I do now. Mm-hmm. So when so there was a time when you moved back to
0: Japan mm-hmm. and uh, starting your activities there. When was the first time you were? Uh, getting in touch with the with the internet and, and computing in, in particular?
1: So I think the... <clears throat> I'm trying to remember exactly, but my father was a chemist, so I used to work with computers um, during the summer. And my first uh, computer that I owned was an Apple II, um, and mostly I was just playing video games. But then I got a modem and started BBS. And around 1984 or something, I found a way to get let's say cheap access to X25. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I remember uh, those times. <laughs> and I connected actually to Europe. Um, and many of the universities in Europe like Essex University was the first mud the game and a lot of hackers were hanging out there. And just about every university, if I go to the operator channel or chat the operator and say, hey, I'm a high school student in Japan, can you give me an account? back then they give you an account. So you have been not hanging around in the chats in the CERN as well, I guess. Yeah, and but mostly just um, like talk Unix or VMS talk, and then mm-hmm. I got an account on University of um, London, which had an ARPANET uh, connection. So I was using Janet in Europe, and then I had an ARPANET connection. And one of my friends, one year older than me, was at MIT. So I was able to get to MIT through uh, ARPANET, through the uh, University of College London. And then from there, I got to play around. Um, But this is... So it's 84, so it's a bit late compared to some of the old timers, but it was kind of early for typical internet. Mm -hmm. Um, But we didn't have slip or... PPP or anything like that, so it was... Oh, well, it just didn't exist at the time, yeah. right. Yeah, I think X25 was what everybody was using yeah. back then. I still have my notebook with the LV- all the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> so, um,
0: well, well, that's that's interesting. I mean, can you remember the the first moment that you were actually getting what you were into? I mean, that connecting to a network is one thing, but actually feeling this connectedness with something very remote
1: well i had uh, several waves so before even the internet when i was on the source i was in a little american school in japan and my teachers were quite mediocre and so i would go online and talk to professors in united states universities and i learned more on the on even on these uh the source and CompuServe than i did at school and so to me that was one breakthrough and then the second one was when I got onto the MIT computer and was watching some of the NASA launch stuff and realized that you could get in and that all these um, super hackers were there and very cool. But the biggest breakthrough for me actually was rather late. It was, I think, in the early 90s or something when we started getting, we got PPP. And when I connected a uh client i think it was a gopher client or an ftp client or something that really kind of triggered to me something that was i i finally got where it was going i think when we got the slip and ppp connections um i always thought it was about connecting but what happened when i got the ppp connection or the slip connection was i realized that all the stuff we're doing in music and in television, and all of this was just going to end. It was going to change. So that's, that's when I really dropped everything else and just focused on internet.
0: Yeah, sharing sharing music. you um, just talked about here in in the break. The the music uh, we're listening to is uh, yet another Creative Commons licensed music uh, mix um, called Speed Merchant. Um, you are <coughs> yeah, well you you have a special relationship with uh, the Creative Commons uh, scene. Um, you are in the board of um, Creative Commons International. That's correct.
1: So we juggled the names a little bit now, but there's uh, Creative Commons, which is the main parent, and I'm on the board of that. And we have a new entity called, we changed it to iCommons, and I'm the chairman of that and on the board. And iCommons is about um, spreading the community part, is the message part. Um, And Creative Commons is mainly going to focus on the legal licenses and translating the licenses and porting the license to the different jurisdictions.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so what's iCommons then doing if they're not focusing so much on, on so licenses?
1: They're focused on spreading the word and on helping the communities. And we have an annual uh, meeting of all of the Creative Commons um, people. Usually what happens in each country is you have some very hardcore legal guys who or girls who, who love to work on the license and the legal issues. And then usually there's a community of people who use the licenses. And we found that the two communities have to work together, but they're quite different. And so we created two separate organizations to manage those projects.
0: Mm -hmm. So what are the the current issues in in the Creative Commons scene? I mean, there has been a lot of... uh, First of all, there were quite a few new licenses coming up, especially the sampling uh, licenses and this... um, What's the official name of the Third World Related... Uh, Developing Nations. Developing Uh, Nations um, license. Can you... I I have been involved in quite a few discussions about this, with people claiming that these licenses are not uh, as free as they uh, had expected, as the sampling license is not as liberal in in allowing private copies and so on.
1: What's your standpoint on this? So, Creative Commons, the licensing idea, is really about providing people with a choice and providing people with licenses for something that they would like to use. And I think that Creative Commons' core mission is really about choice. And so on the really hard line end, the Free Software Foundation and all of those guys, they're great and they are a political movement, trying to change the world and I think they're doing a great job. And then you have the Hollywood guys on the other side, but you have a huge population of people in between who don't have a choice. And they don't, can't go GPL. They don't want to go all rights reserved. And what we did with the sampling license, which is, I think, the key to this, is our customer, our constituent, is the majority of musicians. So if you go to the majority of musicians, they have not yet become political enough to be able to go all the way to the free source side yet. But almost every musician you ask, if you ask them, do you mind sampling? They'll say, no, we think sampling is great. And then you say, do you know the record labels and the, the rights collections agencies won't let you do it? They say, no, that sucks. So for us, the sampling license was addressing a very specific choice that musicians didn't have, right? And. Both Larry and I are political, and sometimes we're maybe more political on the left than where Creative Commons is. But I, at least my personal opinion about Creative Commons, is that it shouldn't be that political. It should be, because the thing is that Creative Commons is not just a license. It has the metadata. We have a deal with Google and Yahoo to do the searching. We have this whole infrastructure to try to create this uh, network of legal institutions. The people, for instance, who run it in, in Korea... They're the federal judges of Korea, you know. So this isn't a, uh, you know, kind of – Creative Commons isn't something you wear on a T-shirt to pick up girls. Creative Commons is something that's supposed to lubricate the infrastructure for content. And so sometimes we have to make decisions that may be slightly um, controversial for the free culture people. Um, And they can, you know – but I think what they should do is instead of say all of Creative Commons is bad – if you don't agree with a license, many people don't like the sampling license, you're free to say you don't like the s- sampling license, you don't support it. But I think as, a, as an organization for Creative Commons, we really want to address um, every kind of license in between those two ends. Mm-hmm. That makes sense.
0: So wh- what's the role of the Developing Nations uh, license in that respect?
1: I think that was an uh, interesting idea. Um, it's not been adopted by many people, and I think it will eventually fade out. Um, and in can, that can you
0: describe the basic idea, Yeah. yeah. So the
1: basic idea was that um, many developing nations uh, don't have textbooks, uh, need all kinds of content. And a lot of large companies are willing to give their content up in markets that don't make money anyway. So for instance, uh, or even artists. So let's say you uh, write a book and you say, okay, I don't mind having it shared for free in countries that don't have any money, but I don't want... Um, Random House to publish it in the United States without paying me any money and so the developing nation license was basically if you're on the list of developing nations you can use the content Um, I think the problem is that the the creative commons in developing nations just isn't built up enough and that there weren't enough people who actually cared enough about that so um, I think and I think another thing that I think we were a little bit naive and I'm on the board of Open Source Initiative and we're a little bit more advanced in this which is I think having too many licenses is confusing. And so I think that proliferation of licenses is bad. And put on my open source initiative hat, um, we have been getting criticized by this, but I think it's moving forward, which is we're trying to uh, get rid of, or at least try to get people to merge many of the licenses. So for instance, Intel recently um, deprecated their uh, open source license because they said, well, actually there are other licenses the same. We don't need our own vanity license. Um, and in Creative Commons, what we're trying to do is... Um, Lessig is now talking about a federated licenses. So for share alike licenses in different jurisdictions, or maybe even ones that are similar, you put a clause in that says, if it's a derivative work, the artist can choose any of the licenses on this list. So that you... you because, you know, the, the fact is... Um, copyright is not criminal law. And copyright is very gray. And so you can get as detailed as you want in the, the legal text... But the fact of the matter is it's not black and white. And so one of the problems, I think, is a lot of technical hackers who write code look at copyright licenses as if it's code. But it's not that exact. And so what we're saying is that what's more important, 99% of a copyright dispute will be the intent of the artist, not the legal code so much. And so I think what we're trying to do is say, okay, if it's substantially the same, let's cluster them the same so that the artist doesn't have... They have so much confusion about we're using this mm. license or that license.
0: I um, usually refer to Creative Commons being a toolbox for, mm-hmm. for uh, just choosing what you ex- want to express. And I think it's um, quite important to make it as simple as possible, as simple to understand. Because before the sampling license, there was at least this common denominator of saying, if it is any of the CC license, licenses, private copies are okay. Mm-hmm. So and uh, yeah, I think it can be become quite complicated the more licenses are added but well that somehow also reflects the the main problem with all these uh, jurisdictions and, and, and legal issues it's just not easy and we have to find a way to deal with that So, we talked about um, Creative Commons. You also mentioned the open source initiative that you're also part of. What what are they doing?
1: So, the open source initiative is um, originally, it was uh, organized mainly to approve or to set a standard for open source licenses. Um, and recently, they have been starting to work on uh, defining open standards and A lot of the reason why I got involved was um, many governments, local governments and companies have finally decided, okay, we're going to do open source. And for instance, uh, there are local governments that are doing uh, requests for proposals for open source or open standards and things like that. But the definition is not that clear. And a lot of people who don't have open source say they're open source. Um, and it's also important to discuss what it means and open standard actually is i think also very important because i'm strongly against software patents and i think that the whole issue of encumbering technology by using the and the japanese like sony is very notorious for doing this and really to educate not not so much the geeks they are important but really to educate the policymakers and the corporate executives and so that's one thing i was doing and also regionally in japan and then the other part is what I was mentioning earlier about license proliferation. You know, I think that we have a tendency; everyone wants to make their own open source license. Well, we, it's better not to have so many. And and with this may come up in the ICANN discussion, but you know, it's there's a very important um, trade-off and distinction between standardization and innovation. You know, you don't want ten different kinds of TCP/IP you don't want three routes, and you don't want a million open source licenses. Some people have said that there's probably over 500 open source licenses. And especially when you do this, um, the kind of share-alike kind of licenses where you have to uh, use the same license, then it creates projects that can't merge together. Um, So to me, that was a very important issue, um, particularly in the context of my pushing the Japanese government towards open source.
0: And did they follow your push?
1: Um, <laughs> I'm pushing mm-hmm. um, but the um, Ministry of Posts is now all using uh, Firefox mm-hmm. and uh, the, a lot of the governments I'm, agencies I'm working with now are sincerely looking at open source um, and again I think that a lot of companies now come in and act like they're doing open source so right now my my the important thing is to define it correctly
0: another um well, I would say political institution uh, regarding these issues is uh, ICANN, the uh, well originally the re- registry for assigned names and numbers. It's still in the title, but say, I would say that the role has changed a bit. It's not only about names and numbers. Um, you are, have been elected into the board last year, right?
1: Yes, uh, it was through... They have a thing called the Nomination Committee, um, which uh, is a panel of people from the different supporting organizations, and I was selected. And uh, that group selects <coughs> excuse me, people for basically a neutral position. So eight of the uh, 15 board members are selected through this process. Um, and I think the focus still should be and is primarily names and numbers. Uh, the, and people keep throwing things that I can... And we try very much to, at least some of us try very much to keep it very focused. Um, but in the context of this uh, WISIS, the UN discussion about internet governance and things like that, we've had to deal with a lot of issues that were beyond the scope of the original uh, plan. Uh, but I think that the, the, the idea is really to keep it as narrow as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, if I could talk a little bit about ICANN, I, I think it took me about two years to decide uh, to participate. i had been talking to them for a long time. I always thought they were horribly corrupt. Every image that all of you have probably listening to this is the same image I had. But what I did was I met a bunch of the board members. And most of them that I met were sincerely interested in trying to change it and fix it. And then the other thing was I met a bunch of people who were involved in trying to destroy ICANN and take it over to the ITU or to the UN. And I met many politicians who said, well, well, the, one of the things that really triggered it was an American senator who said, the days of the lawless internet are over, we're going to give it to the UN. And this really scared me. And then I talked to the UN people and I talked to the ITU people, and some of them are good people, but generally it's one country, one vote which can be captured. And it's also a lot of influence by the telephone monopolies. And I could see this that even though I can have many issues, that it's still something that I can participate in. I can't participate in the WTO. I can't participate in the ITU. I can't go to a UN meeting and speak for an hour or so. That's and we okay. all
0: have a very long tradition here, especially in the 80s, fighting against all these telecom monopolies. And uh, yes. I think we can be pretty happy that's at least gone a bit. Yes. Uh, yeah, I totally agree on that. But so what what can be done? I mean, what, what can we do t- uh, in order to support this uh, approach to reform ICANN in order to uh, retain a structure that's probably more flexible for mm-hmm. our needs?
1: Well, I think that... Uh, the ICANN process has changed every year and every meeting I think is getting better and right now if you go to an ICANN meeting you can grab the mic and say whatever you want the board has to respond Um, a lot of the board members are now quite open like I will talk to anybody about ICANN and anything that's interesting I will talk to the board about and I will put on the board list and everyone sincerely discusses it so you you have to kind of take my word for this and you can test it by talking to me but the inputs are open The two problems is people have kind of given up on ICANN, many of the geeks, so they don't give us their opinion. So what happens is only the kind of, I call them ICANN otaku, but people who go to ICANN, every ICANN meeting, it's become kind of a small group of people. And it's a couple hundred people, but it's not a big group. And the other problem is that ICANN has become, because each time a new organization wants to get involved, we create a new acronym, we create a new organization, it's become very complex from the sort of process so you know PDP stands for process development process and all this stuff so to try to learn how to play the ICANN game requires some training and what I'm trying to do is make it so it's easier to participate but um, the best thing you can do is when there's an ICANN meeting in your local region just go when there was one in Luxembourg some of my friends uh, hacker friends from my IRC channel came and I was sitting on IRC explaining, okay, this guy is this doing this and the reason he's mad is because the ICANN just did this .NET agreement and they're really upset and here's why they're upset. And I give a sort of blow by blow to these guys about what's going on, and then the next time they can they can participate. It's it just takes a little bit of effort to go, you know. And so you have thousands of people here at CCC. If a couple hundred come to ICANN, they can take over a lot of the conversation. Yeah, I
0: think much more can be can be done. We're just doing it. I mean, uh, especially at the congress, you can re- really see that people are somehow on the on the verge of, of, of uh, realizing that things have to be done, and if they are done, uh, things can actually change. For Instance the movement against the software patents here in Europe, which has been really uh, professionally done, was uh, really successful. While other um, things like fighting against data retention haven't been as successful. And it's probably mostly uh, a matter of getting, yeah, getting the hackers organized and everybody mm-hmm. else as well. So, <clears throat> well, this is um, well, this quite interesting. As you mentioned, your RSC uh, channel. When I first uh, got got Joey Ito on the radar, it was actually uh, on Orkut and at that time I, I didn't really know why I was there and I think that was feeling many people shared. Nobody really knew why they were there, they were just there just to see what it's like to be there and there was this uh, crazy Japanese guy <laughs> <laughs> uh, who collected friends and I think you were the first to hit the 1000 friends mark. Uh, which actually kept you from getting new friends on Orkut, isn't it?
1: Yes, I hit the I hit the limit, but it was it was because but it was I wasn't doing it seriously, so I feel kind of bad because what happened was when Orcut came out, it was already not the first social network, so there was already Friendster and all these other things, and my IRC channel we have probably always about a hundred people, and then total maybe a, a thousand or so people who come through the channel. So we all got on to, when there was still invite only on the IRC channel, everyone said, okay, let's go raid Orkut. And we made it kind of a game. Um, so it quickly became useless.
0: <laughs> so you're actively using all these social tools. Uh, like IRC, I would call it a social tool as well, because chatting is just a social thing. Uh, you also have a, a, your, your wiki running, and you have been preparing your talks there. What's your uh, experience with uh, using all that and, and having this super public life?
1: Um, well, I, I in- enjoy it. It sometimes uh, becomes an overload of information, but um, one of the things that I do now is that uh, with Instant Messenger and IRC and all these other, and SMS, I pick at least two or three days of the week where I schedule nothing and I open up my computer and I have the presence of hundreds of people and I just choose people in the order that I need to talk to them but what's quite important about this method which is asynchronous oh we call it poly polychronic instead of monochronic is that you can have one conversation through the whole day so I'm talking about podcasts with you then then I find somebody else to talk and then the conversation continues goes on to conference call goes on to Skype goes back to chat and then if you have a normal day, from my like normal Japanese business day, which is I have 15-minute meetings, 30-minute meetings, and one-hour meetings, like 10 or 12 through the whole day, and each meeting has nothing to do with the one before. Some meetings don't mean anything by the time they happen. And even though you only need 15 minutes, sometimes you have an hour. And so it has very low context and very wasteful. And so it's difficult for people who really need to get to me, but this kind of instant messenger presence oriented um, business style is actually very efficient uh, if you use it well and so it's um, it requires a little bit of effort because you have to learn how to say no um, and you have to be able to switch it off but um, it turns out to be quite good and I'm also using World of Warcraft
0: and there is the next message coming in right now. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, I, 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 well, I totally agree, because um, especially organizing uh, our events has been almost impossible without these tools, and a couple of years ago we totally switched over to using instant messaging chats and, and, and wikis, uh, in addition to the traditional mailing list style, which doesn't really help much. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so well, in in your in your keynote uh, talk, you had a list of points. Uh, getting back to this, but one of them was um, well supporting anonymity and, and and privacy of the individual. How does uh, this get together with using so many social digital communication tools? Um, how can how can privacy be achieved in this uh, in the digital world?
1: Well, I think that. Uh um, in my talk, I was talking more about the profiling aspect of privacy But to switch a little bit to the personal aspect of privacy um, I think that what's scary to me is not, about all, is not all of the information on Google It's all the information that people have that I don't know That's actually much more dangerous And so for me, by when, when I r- write my blog Anything I have to say, I'm on the first page of results So somebody can criticize me as much as they want But I have a voice, and I can argue back Right, So the worst thing is to not have a voice. And the more public you make yourself, I t- say, I, and I've told the same story over and over again, I'm consistent. Right? So anything that anybody says that's not true looks quite inconsistent from my personal thing. And this isn't the best strategy for everyone. But for me, if I'm going to be public anyway, I might as well go extreme because then it's quite clear what's true and what's not. Um, I think that for other people that I know that are in my network, I, you know, we have. I know many people who I don't know their real name, but since they consistently contribute to my life or my thinking, I've built a certain amount of trust with their pseudonym. And so, pseud- pseudonymity, I think, is another way where if you have something to say, it's 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 quite strong. And um, I think that that's another form of communication. And I get a lot of anonymous tips too, um, and a lot of them come into my blog. Um, the, the other thing is that once you have a public image, you b- build a certain level of trust. So I become a gateway. So, for instance, I wrote about a whistleblower for the Japanese uh, power company over a nuclear um, mistake. But he didn't contact the mainstream media, but he saw my blog posts and he met with me and told me all this information about the, 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 about, about the nuclear problems. And then I helped negotiate with him to find him a good reporter that he could trust. And so I think this anonymity also is kind of interesting because... Once you become somewhat public, you can also be a gateway to anonymous people or pseudonymous people. But I think the primary thing on my talk, though, is I'm not really a high-risk person. I'm public enough so that it would be quite difficult, not impossible, but quite difficult to kill me or torture me without everyone knowing this. But I think what the people... Immediately. Yes, the, the, wait, stop. stop. No, but the, the, he locked the, the, off the chat. <laughs> but the, the people who I think need to be protected the most are like the bloggers in Iran or the political movements in Zimbabwe, maybe some of the Chinese. And the problem and the thing that I really need to focus on is that we don't want to create some kind of technical change in standards or in, in architecture that makes it easier for the authorities to take away anonymity or it makes it impossible for anonymity to exist. Mm.
0: Well, <clears throat> I just recall the... Well, there has been this... Uh, <laughs> incident in the in the Wikipedia with this one entry um, what was the name again, you know, recall the, the journalist who was like yeah. accused of having something to do with the assassination of JFK right. uh, which he hadn't, but it was on Wikipedia, so there was some kind of arguing about it and the English Wikipedia now has introduced a, a change in the way the the wiki is configured so that mm-hmm. people who are not logged in can't um, create new articles, they can still edit existing articles. I don't know if this change really, uh, but there are other cases where people sort of think that information that has been contributed in articles regarding a certain person mm-hmm. should be there and they're re- requesting having it erased and probably even erased from the logs mm-hmm. of the Wikipedia. What do you think about this and how does the idea of the open encyclopedia and uh, yeah privacy mixes
1: so that's an interesting point I, I, I think that there are people who have legitimate concerns but I think that the value of having everything open um, exceeds the cost so I think that it's more about literacy of the reader then it is a problem with the system. And I think that the new generation will be smarter. Wikipedia, you should not compare a living organism with some dead wood. You know, Wikipedia is an organism that's alive. Sometimes it has a bad day. But you can go read through the logs and make your own decision about... So you have to learn how to read Wikipedia. Wikipedia is a community of people. And the current page is just a certain state and instance, right? But the IBM test on Wikipedia vandalism of people erasing pages... They calculated it's a five-minute average mean time to fix vandalism. And it's actually probably faster now. This was several years ago. And so, you know, we were talking about the Internet being best effort. And the old days, the telephone company guys would say, oh, best effort isn't good enough. You need 100%. And they would charge you so much money for that 1%. And Wikipedia is the same way. I think that it's not 100%, but the problem is so neither is Encyclopedia Britannica. And if there's a mistake in Encyclopedia Britannica, you're stuck with it for a long time. And so I think it's really, you know, Wikipedia should not be looked at. The problem is everyone looks at it as if it's a book. It's not a book. It's a community. Um, and so censoring the pages or removing or creating some kind of artificial uh, infrastructure to me sounds a lot like censorship. And if... And my whole thing about censorship is you, we have free speech now. We want to create voices. You don't censor the opponents. You argue with them and you beat them in public. And if you censor them, if you look on blogs and something like that, you can erase everything, but the bloggers will, always, the more you censor, the more they'll talk about it. So we, I, I imagine if you took a Wikipedia article down because of some kind of bad comment, it will be all over the blogs. You know? And so there's no way to stop it. The best way is to get your own voice and argue. I'd like to get back
0: to well where we are right now the the congress um you've been here the the second time. what do you think of the uh, event here? what's your experiences so far
1: well i think it's uh it's very unique for me it's uh it's kind of it really i think Congress is a good word because it's a new it's actually old, but it's, it's, it's a different group of citizens that have are enabled with a different set of skills um, and a different uh, culture. That y- you look at the whole group, and it's 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 a new citizenship, I think. And I really like the the speech that you started with and this theme of trying to push them into some kind of activism because I think that um, well, to give you an example, I was talking to one of the guys, a diplomat that works at the UN. And he said that the, the landmine treaty, that personal landmine treaty, would not have happened without Internet. Because now there's so much communication and coordination of the NGOs that they could never do before because they didn't have the money to coordinate. So before, the bureaucracies and the governments had better coordination because they had more money. But now, the hackers have better coordination because they have better communication technology. And I think that what's really impressive about... Being able to hack everything from computers to networks to systems, and that idea that you can hack, is, uh, um, is a kind of empowering of individuals, which I think will, I, makes me feel very optimistic. And most conferences I go to are kind of mixed between people who are literate or illiterate or turned on or turned off, and so you have to kind of speak with a very lowest common denominator and you have to explain everything. Well here, when I said open network, everybody got excited and, and it's, it's, it, on the one hand it's kind of bad because it's preaching to the choir, but to me it's, it's, it, that's not a, it's like my father saying I can't use a calculator because I have to learn it by hand. Here you can shorthand everything and get very quickly to the very important points. And um, to me that's very exciting and inspiring.
0: Well, we are pretty openly communicating the Chaos Communication Congress as being a hacker conference. What's your standpoint on the term? Hacker, what's coming to your mind if you are thinking about hackers?
1: Well, I, I now have gotten used to the two definitions. So, depending on who is saying hacker or who I'm saying it to, um, it just means two different things. Um, there are many words like this. Um, and so, for me, a hacker is somebody, the way that you describe it, but is, is somebody who is willing to... Uh, so, my favorite thing is what I learned from Timothy Leary, which is question authority and think for yourself. Um, and then... It, the third thing that you have added to that is question authority, think for yourself and hack. And I think hacking is the, is part of that, but then it includes a lot more action than just thinking. And so I think that this whole hacker culture, um, and the word is really what we need to cause the revolution that we have to have. And so I I love the word and I love the, the the experience that we're having here. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. So, um, in, in, your, in your opening speech, which, well, we were getting to, uh, it was really very easy to communicate with you. We just drop the line in, in, in the uh, instant messenger and saying, yeah, we want a keynote and the title should be private investigations and everything else you can figure out yourself. <laughs> so what was, uh, what was going through your mind uh, with this uh, request?
1: Well, uh, so I, since I had been here last year and last year I didn't really know what to expect. But uh, after listening to the, some of the discussions and meeting the people, I realized that really this was a completely different kind of switched on crew. And uh, I really looked at the program and I thought that this opportunity to kind of um, make a comment at the beginning, that was the, the most uh, honorable thing that I could imagine. and. What happened for me uh, was I had to go back and I wrote... I thought about everything from scratch. So I went through my brain and thought of every single thing that I thought was important in my life. And most of these issues, like anonymity and privacy, I never discuss with people because I always get in these arguments with people who don't ever understand what I'm trying to say. So these are kind of taboo topics for me. And what was great about this... uh, this, opportunity you gave me was I got to hit all of the topics I never really get to talk about I mean you can talk about creative Commons and you can talk about blogging and I get very close to talking about the really hardcore issues but in this uh, at the at this conference I got to hit each one directly on the head
0: <laughs> one of the points you, you had was uh, voice is more important than votes <clears throat> which more or less also relates to your emergent democracy thesis if I understand mm-hmm. it right um that like the, the public discussion is uh yeah in the end much more important than any kind of election. Mm-hmm. I mean I think general trust in election and especially in election results mm-hmm. is <laughs> on an all-time low yes. <laughs> anyway. Um what are the channels you see uh, currently and in the near future where this voice can can be heard? I mean we had weblogs. Uh, and you're also very, very actively blogging yourself and um, you're involved with uh, Technorati, the, the blog search engine and Six Apart, who's actually doing um, blogging, hosting and, and creating the software. What what other formats do you think are appropriate? Because I have the feeling that this text-based internet is not addressing everybody.
1: Yes, um, I may be misquoting, but I think it was Napoleon who said, I would rather write the country's songs than the country's laws in order to change the the country. And I think that what's important to understand is that each human being has a different input source that they use. And actually, I think things like culture and music grabs hearts and minds more than text. And so one of the key things that um, Lessig is pushing for right now is to try to free up video. Um, because right now with text, you have a lot of fair use in the United States. You can use it for critique and quote people without copyright. But video is quite difficult. But there are a lot of great political videos coming out, and that's actually grabbing people a lot. And right now, they're using copyright to prevent free speech. I think things like podcasts, I mean, I think maybe more people will have time to sit in the train in Japan and listen to podcasts than they would have time to sit in front of the computer. They'd rather be playing a game or something or watching TV. I think that each culture has a different one. I think music is a huge one. And one of the things for Creative Commons that I'm very interested in is trying to get uh, music directly from different cultures, because then you can start communications. And and to me, there's another problem that I I call the caring problem, which is it doesn't really matter what you know if you don't care. And usually you you don't read what you don't care about. So if you talk to newspapers and magazines and you ask, why don't you cover China more? Or why don't you cover Africa more? And a lot of times, Africa in particular, it's because our readers don't care. And the way you make them care is through culture. And so one of the first steps, I think, is to connect people together through culture. And that part is it's connected to voice because you only listen to people you care about, and trust is also very important. And so, you know, if reggae, for instance, got a lot of people interested in certain cultures that they didn't have before, and so it's it's all a part of a, a, a very big movement, which I think is about independent music. It's about folk music, folk art. It's it's bottom up, and I think that the internet is allowing all of this to happen.
0: Hmm. Um. I just had a. A wonderful thought, and now it's gone <laughs> <laughs> sorry I keep talking you confused <laughs> me with with the with the, with the uh, uh, reggae music but um, <clears throat> so um i know i'm 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 a bit lost now yeah yeah I know I remember what I wanted to say you in in your talk you were also re- uh, relating to uh, what can be done? And, uh, and as far as I understand, you, you have a very optimistic view on what, what can be achieved by, by using this uh, emerging democracy tools. Um there was a there's an ongoing discussion here at the Congress if we have lost the war or if we haven't uh ju- if we just have lost a battle or two and uh, maybe the whole war is still going on and others might argue there is no war at all and we should probably start one. What's your what's your point on 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 this and your your outlook your optimistic outlook for the future?
1: So um I'm one of those people who is generally optimistic. And I'm also, my, in my personality, I the more of the challenge, the harder the challenge, the more excited I get. So, it's sort of, in, with that context, I, I think that um, we will win the war. I think that the war never ends, which is means that someday we'll win. And it may take longer than I expect. But I think that one of the problems with the conspiracy uh, people, one, I sincerely believe after trying to figure out all of these conspiracies and meeting all of these people that people talk about, I don't believe that there really is as nearly a big a conspiracy as people think. And they're not well-coordinated. And most of these are just normal people doing a normal job. And really it's the system and the machine and the inertia which moves things in forward more than kind of scheming brilliant minds planning the world that's my opinion but at a tactical level it's also not a good idea to go around running around talking about conspiracy because you know every you want everyone to join in and speak their mind and one of the biggest risks to democracy is not to be able to say what you want because of fear and this whole idea that they're smarter they're bigger we lost the war unless you're a masochist you're going to shut up What we need is we need everyone to start talking, to start speaking their mind. And the more you speak, the more you think. And the problem is that if everyone starts believing these conspiracy theories, they're going to switch off and try to ignore it. It's like the Matrix, right? I want to go back in and plug back in because I'm afraid I don't want to know. And this is a natural tendency of most people. And even in the Matrix, if I was there, I would still be fighting against the machines. And I think that the the, the problem is that some of the conspiracy guys – sort of see it that way and, and so to me it, it's, it's, it's very counterproductive um, and it's, it's I think you should not overestimate their intelligence and not underestimate the stupidity because the other thing that's really interesting is when you try to hack a system if it's not very smart when you've hacked it it doesn't, the hack doesn't work. Do you know what I mean? So if, if your computers, if you send in a, 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 if you go into a computer and you hack the computer but the computer is broken, it doesn't do what you want. And that's the problem is when I, for instance, I hacked the Japanese system, I got, you know, the politicians and the public and the media on my side against this uh, national ID and there was no opposition, but the bill went through. Because even though I was able to hack it, um, I wasn't able to stop it because it kept rolling even without a driver. And I think that that's actually more dangerous than having somebody with a conspiracy. Because if you can identify the three people that you need to destroy or turn over or convince or whatever, it's quite easy. But when you have 100,000 people all running in the same direction with no leader, which is what most bureaucracies are, it's very hard to hack that system.
0: Okay. I think uh, we had quite a few very interesting points um, and we should uh, probably end this podcast here thank you very much thank for you, uh, for joining me and uh, sharing your thoughts with us uh, I hope it won't be the last time you've come to the Chaos Communication Congress yes, we're I'll trying hard to uh, keep it a cool event uh, it's attractive to many people and would like to bring the voice out uh, ever more So, uh, yeah, thanks again and uh, goodbye to everybody who has been listening to this and see you on the next podcast
1: soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.